Hi, everyone. Happy New Year. Oh, that was easy. I didn't have to use the gravel. Okay, good. Um, I am Molly Ellingson with Herman Miller. Um, I am your new chair this year for programs. Um, but I also would like to acknowledge uh, my co-chairs, Rich Wagner with AT&T. Wave. Hi. Um, and Rob Weatherald who, with Oracle, who couldn't be with us today. But um, And I also like to thank... Uh, quickly before our speakers step up here, our 2015 Programs Committee, uh, Jerry Moore with Red Cross, American Red Cross, John Biffro with CBRE, and Margie Barron with JLL. So if we can just give them a round of applause, that'd be great. So our Programs Committee is really, really excited for this next year, um, bringing fresh content with what's happening in the market, um, and we're really trying to align with Cornet Global. Um, please plan on our next month luncheon with um, Sean Reynolds with JLL, Managing Director. We will be talking about uh, data center trends, um, colo, cloud, or construct. And we've got some really great speakers lined up that we've reached out to and are in the works. So they will be, um, uh, you know, announced shortly, but just to kind of name some names, we're talking with cars.com, with Citadel, and, and Microsoft. So um, please continue to monitor the website for an e-blast that come out um, to prepare for that luncheon. And it will be on February 11th, uh, second Thursday of the month as usual. Um, but to, just a couple notes, today's program is being podcast um, and will be posted to the website. And if you are trying to receive your MCR, you do receive one continuing education credit for each luncheon that you do attend. So there is a sign-up sheet at the registration table if you need further information on that. Uh, we do encourage your feedback, as we do on every luncheon. So there will be surveys that will be distributed at the tables during our Q&A. Um, and then just another special thank you to the 2015 committee for helping um, spearhead this luncheon today. So thank you very much for that. Um, and then onward to today's topic. You know, our monthly surveys always come back wanting to hear about uh, our jobs and the economy. So um, we have back by popular demand this year, uh, Scott Brave and Rick Mattoon. Uh, senior economists and economic advisors with the Federal Reserve Bank of Chicago. So please welcome our distinguished speakers to the stage. All right, well, thank you for the invitation to come back. I think it's been two or three years since I've been here, but I know Rick, Rick has been here on a regular basis, and my colleague Bill Strauss, I think, was here the last couple of years. I'm going to talk about things a little bit differently than Bill probably did last year. What I'd like to do today is give you a brief update on the outlook for 2016, and then use that discussion to really put current monetary policy in perspective. And then Rick will talk a little bit about the state and local situation, and we'll take any questions you have at the end. So let's start with GDP growth, our, our broadest indicator of health in the US economy. Over the last two years, we've seen growth slightly above trend. When we think of trend growth, we think of about 2% currently. And we've averaged something closer to about 2.4% over the last two years. Now, that said, it's been a fairly volatile two years. If you look at the bars here, this is each quarter from 2014 to 2015 Q3. We've had some periods of very strong growth, north of 4%. And we've had some periods where growth's been pretty weak, below 1%. Now, going forward, the expectations for most consensus forecasters, and for this, I'm using the blue chip consensus, 
are that we're going to see another year of slightly above trend growth. So the blue chip expect about 2.5% growth over the course of next year. That said, if you look at these forecasts from November of last year to the most recent numbers in early January, they've come in quite a bit, particularly in the fourth quarter of last year. And I'll talk a little bit about some of the incoming data that suggests maybe we ended 2015 on a weaker note. And then also try to explain why these forecasters are sort of discounting some of this weakness, and they really expect another pretty solid year in 2016. The easiest way to see this is if you break down GDP growth to its various components, various sectors of the economy here. And the, the three that I like to look at most closely, they kind of lay the base for growth over um, the coming year, is consumption, which is the black bar here, uh, business fixed investment, which is the red bar, and the blue bar is residential investment. If you add up those three components, that's what I'd like to call private domestic demand. That's sort of the, the backbone of the economy. And over this two-year period, private domestic demand, really since the mid-2014, has averaged about 3% which is a pretty good number if we think of trend being 2%, about a percentage point above trend. Now, the thing to notice here, though, during this period, we've had some pretty persistent offsetting weaknesses. And the most two common weaknesses, and what we're seeing again, is actually in these brown bars and the green bars. That's the contribution to growth from inventory investment and net exports. So these are really the headwinds that we're facing. Uh, most forecasters really project them to, to continue here for a little while. And so that 2.5% number really kind of builds in some expectation that we'll continue to see drags on growth from basically world growth conditions and a little bit of a turn in the inventory cycle. So let me talk first about inventories, because that's a very short-run dynamic. Really, if you think about both these, these effects, of the two, inventories is more of a short-run concern, but world growth might be a little bit more of a medium-run uh, concern. <clears throat> so what we've seen over the course of the, the end of 2015 is we've actually seen inventory sales ratios spike a little bit. So by what I, what I mean by that is sort of this is manufacturers and retailers in the economy measuring their sales levels relative to their inventory levels. And usually when you see this ratio pick up, when you start to build inventory relative to sales, that means there's sort of an excess of uh, supply in the, in the chain here. And that usually means it's gotta be worked off over time. You can see that quite clearly here in the blue line. This is the inventory sales ratio. When this thing tends to go up, you tend to see inventories contract. And we've had this period where we've had rising inventory sales ratio, and most forecasters are expecting in the fourth quarter we started to see some contraction in inventories. Short-run drag on growth, but definitely something to, to think about in, in 2016. Now, the other big development in the outlook and possibly related to these, these inventory uh, movements has been the decline in energy prices. So everyone's seen this, right? Gas all of a sudden is, is very cheap again. Um, oil prices have come down quite substantially. Uh, that has two effects on the economy. One, it's a, it's a good thing for consumers. It increases their purchasing power. And I'll talk a little bit about the consumer sector. I actually think that's probably the, the most uh, positive part of the economy at the moment and will be in 2016. Uh, but it's not necessarily a good thing for the domestic energy industry, which had been a, a source of pretty robust growth the last couple of years. Uh, the easiest way to see this is if you actually look at industrial production. Industrial production actually declined by about a percent last year, and we don't even have the December number in yet, and that's expected to be a little weak. Uh, so it was, it was a pretty weak year in the manufacturing sector, and manufacturing is probably going to continue to be a drag on growth in 2015. Now let me talk briefly about world growth conditions, because that's the other thing that's impacting manufacturing at the moment, especially in our district. We have a lot of capital goods producers in our district and a lot of exporters. Uh, with world growth weakening, and with the US dollar appreciating for most of the past year, 
that's been a drag on, on their sales. Uh, we've seen that. You can see it in anecdotal evidence as well. If you read the Beige Book, for instance, which just came out yesterday uh, for our district, manufacturing struggled in 2015. And really, the underlying reasons for that are likely to continue into 2016 as well. Now, when you look at the world growth picture, the, what I like to look at here is the IMF. They actually produce quarterly forecasts of world growth. Uh, that's what's shown here on the left-hand side graph. And they do this both for the current year and for the coming year. Now, the January numbers, I don't believe they haven't come out yet. They won't come out for another week or so. But we can look at least sort of what these forecasts were saying in 2015 and how they were changing and get sort of an inference of what the IMF might think about for 2016. You can see starting in April of 2015 through to October, these forecasts were continually revised down. 2015 ended up a lot weaker than they expected at the beginning of the year. And there is some expectation that 2016 also will be a little weaker, but an improvement over 2015. Not surprising here, there's a lot of expectations of what's going on in China, other developing nations, slower growth there, and also some of the developed countries. Uh, the interesting thing is if you look at the IMF forecasts, we're kind of really an exception to this trend. Uh, for us, and just like the blue chip consensus forecasters, they're really expecting us to continue to have slightly above trend growth. Not robust growth by any means, not 4%, but slightly above trend. Enough growth to really continue to bring down the resource slack that was built up during the recession. And when I talk about the labor markets, I think that's where the, the clearest indication of that is, is coming from. But first, let's uh, wrap up the incoming data and get a sense of why is this Q4 in particular, why is it looking so weak? And why should we kind of shrug that off? Uh, for that purpose, I want to use an index that I know I've used in the past, hopefully Bill Strauss used in the past as well. Uh, this one's my baby. Uh, the Chicago Fed National Activity Index. Are people familiar with that index? Just show of hands, no? A little bit? OK, well, I've got some work to do then. Uh, so we've, we've been producing this um, since 2003. This was actually the brainchild of our uh, current Chicago Fed president, Charles Evans. He was one of the first people that worked really developing this index and, and really presenting it in a way that we could make it public on a monthly basis. And we still do. Every month, we put together a press release. Uh, it basically summarizes all the incoming data into one number that you can kind of look at to get a sense of the health of the US economy. It's a nice barometer in that respect. And the way to read this index is there's 85 different monthly indicators that get condensed down into it. And it's all, they're all in growth rates. So we're looking at growth here. Anytime the majority of those indicators are growing at above trend rates, this index is going to be above zero. That means sort of over the history, which we measure this back to 1967, over that long run history, growth currently is slightly above trend or at trend if it was exactly zero. If it falls below zero, goes negative, that generally signals below trend growth. And the more negative this index gets, the more likely a recession is to be, to be developing. And we've actually found this to be the primary use of this indicator. It's actually a very good real-time indicator of recessions. When it falls below a level of about negative 0.7 for three consecutive months or so, that generally aligns with the beginning of recessions. Now, the, the thing to note is, obviously, during this period, we haven't had a recession. We've had some weak months, some weak quarters, like early 2014. Now, everyone probably remembers that quarter. That was the nasty, nasty weather quarter that we had. Uh, really disrupted excuse me, transportation and logistics for the US. And that was very temporary. That was one month, and we were sort of back to above trend growth. 
And throughout 2014, the U.S. economy was really chugging along at this slightly above trend growth pace, doing, doing quite well. And if you look at the drivers of that, you can look at these 85 indicators and sort of sort them out into categories, things that are related to production and income, the blue bars, things that are related to the labor market, the red bars. And you can see during 2014, both the production and income and the labor market data, they were both pointing in the same direction. It was a good year on a lot of accounts, and we were getting some above-trend growth out of that. Now, that changed in, in 2015. And what we saw was growth actually came down quite a bit, and it's now actually at a place that's slightly below trend. The labor market has continued to do quite well. We've had the red bars here continuing to push up the index. And that's going to be a good sign going forward, particularly for the consumer in 2016. The drag instead on the index has been from the production side of the economy. And this is manufacturing. This is the turn in the inventory cycle. This is a weaker um, growth abroad factoring into net exports and to some degree in inventories as well. And that's really, again, what seems to be explaining the fourth quarter. Even though we don't have the GDP data yet for the fourth quarter, we won't till the end of this month, the index would suggest that the trends that we saw in the third quarter are going to hold in the fourth quarter as well though the overall number is likely to be weaker. Some forecasters are expecting Q4 to be as low as 1% growth, uh, others about 2%, so something in that range seems likely. Nothing way out of trend with what we've had, still you know, pretty close to that 2% trend. Now, if you look deeper and you think, uh, sort of what are some of the, the negatives for 2016? What would I be looking at that I would be a little worried that maybe we won't make that above trend growth pace? I think one of them that is definitely coming out of the most recent data is the business spending side of the economy, business fixed investment. It seems to be the case that businesses pulled back on capital spending in 2015. There's a couple different ways to see this. Uh, the first is if you look at sort of orders of um, capital goods, excluding aircraft only because they're, they tend to be very lumpy, very volatile. So this gives us a smoother reading what's going on in that uh, area of the economy. Orders came down quite a bit in 2015 and so did shipments. And in fact, orders came down a little bit more than shipments. And what that means is that basically, manufacturers were working off pretty robust order backlogs in 2014. So not only did we see orders and shipments come down, but we also worked off these backloads. So now we're at a, at a point in the cycle where if orders don't can, uh, pick up further, you're likely to see less activity in this area. Uh, and some of the forward-looking measures that sort of give us a sense of what we can expect for business spending, uh, these purchasing managers indexes that the ISM produces, uh, both for manufacturing and non-manufacturing industries, they are signaling a little weakness, some things that we can take out of there for 2016. Uh, the interesting thing, though, it's a very bifurcated result at the moment. If you look at the manufacturing industries, those are the guys that saw quite a bit of a pullback in 2015. And in fact, uh, 50 for this indicator indicates sort of a neutral level. So the fact that it's fallen below 50 indicates the manufacturing sector might actually be contracting currently. Uh, so that, that, that's definitely not necessarily a good signal in, for the near term uh, for business spending. However, the non-manufacturing sector, while it's pulled back a little bit, still remains quite robust. It's important to keep in mind that the non-manufacturing sector forms a very large component of GDP. So it can be the case that while manufacturing is contracting, if the non-manufacturing or basically the service side of the economy is still growing at a pretty solid face, pace, we can see um, still slightly above trend growth in 2016. That seems to be the expectation that consensus forecasters are building in to their forecasts at the moment. I, I, that seems a, like a reasonable expectation, but it is a downside risk. If the manufacturing sector were to deteriorate more or we were to see a pullback in the service sector as well, 
um, business fixed investment might not come in at quite the level people are ex expecting. The other way to see this is if we look, besides capital goods, we can also look at non-residential construction, which is obviously uh, something that's very relevant for all of you. Uh, here as well, after a pretty robust 2015, the data at the end of the year started to signal a little bit of a pullback. So if we look at non-residential private construction spending, you can see 2015, it increased quite a bit. We actually got back to a, a pre-recession level, but it's leveled off a little bit since then. And again, if we look at forward-looking indicators, and for this, we tend to use the architectural billings ind index produced by the American Institute of Architects. This is like those purchasing managers index. Anything number above, any number above 50 indicates expansion. Any number below 50 indicates contraction. Some of the most recent data there also suggests you might be seeing a little bit of a contraction. Not a whole lot, but definitely a leveling off. There is definitely a sense that businesses have, have pulled back. And so that, that's a bit of a risk for 2016. Now, at this point, you might be wondering what, what's there to be optimistic about, because I really haven't talked about it a whole lot. Uh, but th this is the key, I think, for 2016. Uh, if we're going to meet that 2.5% expectation, then it's going to have to come from the consumer this year. And the consumer has really been what's driving uh, growth the last two years, in 2014 and 2015. Uh, that consumption bar, when I showed those bar, that bars in the, in the second graph, that uh, part that was coming just from the consumer was actually quite big. Of that 3%, it was about two-thirds of that. And there's good reason to expect that to sort of continue. And the reason for that is largely the labor market. Uh, we've seen a substantial improvement in the labor market over the last two years. In fact, for the last three months or so, uh, annual or monthly job gains have averaged about 300,000 jobs per month. That's a pretty strong number. Um, here at the Fed, we generally think of 100,000 as being the number that you need to meet just to sort of absorb entry into the labor force. So to be 200,000 jobs above, above that number indicates we're making pretty substantial progress in reducing the amount of slack that's in labor markets. And as the job market has improved, so has consumption. Uh, but it's been a little bit of a, a, an unusual story in consumption. If we break down sort of what uh, the items that people are spending on, a lot of this has been driven by durable goods. And the best example there is auto sales. Auto sales have been quite robust over the last couple years, and they're expected to continue to be pretty strong in 2016. If you look at non-durable goods and services, they haven't been quite as robust. That's kind of been what's been lagging and holding the consumer back. But with the labor market improving, there's some expectation that that might be changing. And if you look at the consumer's balance sheets, if you look at their cur current situation, there's a lot of reason to really back that up. Uh, there's a couple things you can look at here. One is we've definitely made a lot of progress in repairing household balance sheets coming out of the crisis. Households took a substantial hit to their balance sheets, both from losses in the stock market and in, in home values. Uh, but over the last several years, we look at the ratio of household net worth to disposable personal income. This is something that the Federal Reserve Board actually produces. We can see that gains in the stock market and gains in home values have actually made up for quite a bit of the, the territory that was lost uh, during the crisis. Now, we've had some pullback, obviously, recently. That's been quite, quite uh, noteworthy in the news in early 2016. Uh, but this improvement that we saw over the last couple years, sort of a wealth effect, has really contributed to consumer spending. It's been sort of a driver of that durable goods consumption. Now, on the other side, we haven't seen a whole lot of real income growth. It's been rather muted. So wage growth has not sort of gotten back to that pre-recession level yet. 
And that, to a large degree, helps explain why spending on non-durables and services has also lagged behind as well. Generally, when, when uh, people's incomes are improving, that's when you start to see the, the two pick up. It's really a pretty strong relationship in there. Uh, one way to see that is here in the right-hand side plot. And this actually comes from some research from a former colleague of, of mine at the Chicago Fed. Uh, the University of Michigan produces a very nice survey of consumers where they ask an, a, a whole bunch of questions about the consumer situation. They ask them what they think uh, inflation is going to be over the next year, and they also ask them what they think their household income is going to be over the next year. So using those two questions, you can actually form an expectation from consumers of what they think their income is going to do in real terms, so price inflation adjusted terms, over the coming year. And when you look at those expectations and you align it with spending on non-durables and services, they tend to track each other quite closely. Now you see during the crisis, income growth expectations collapsed. We got to the point where actually consumers were expecting little to no increase in their real incomes for quite a while. But over the last couple of years, that's crept up back to now pretty close to the average that we saw prior to uh, the recession. Uh, and as, this, as income growth expectations have increased, so has non-durables and services consumption. So going forward into 2016, if this trend were to hold, that would be a pretty good indication we'd start to make up some of that ground on the consumer side that's really lagged behind. And with durable spending holding up at, at decent levels, it's a pretty good um, bet that the consumer is going to be well off in 2016. Now, the other thing to look at here is the underlying dynamics of the labor market itself. Uh, there's a lot going on there that would also suggest that we'd start to see some wage growth that we haven't seen so far in the recovery. Uh, the first thing is it's definitely the sense now that we've removed a lot of labor market slack from the economy. We have the un unemployment rate now at 5%. If you remember, it peaked at around 10% during the recession. It's come down considerably since then. And most economists would think of a range of from about 45 to 5% as being like a natural rate where you would expect the unemployment rate to settle out in the longer run. So we're maybe at the top end of that range. And even some of these broader measures of labor underutilization under that are quite often referenced in the press, these uh, other employment rates. So the, the standard unemployment rate here is this, this black line. All these shaded areas add in additional sort of workers that aren't counted in the traditional calculation, but they are in these broader measures that take into account discouraged workers, so these are people on the margins of the labor force, maybe have given up looking for work and therefore aren't counted in the official unemployment rate. It also includes uh, people that are working part-time for economic reasons. That's how you get to this top number here. You can see that's been a substantial part of the labor underutilization during the recovery. But even by this broadest measure of unemployment, we're starting to get back to where we were prior to the recession. So we've taken out a lot of slack. There's still a little bit more to go, but as the slack is, is coming down, it's reasonable to expect that wage growth will start to pick up as well. And the clearest indication that we, of we have, that we have of that currently is actually if we look at what's called the quits rate. This is sort of the flow rate for the number of people that are uh, quitting their current job and moving to another job in a given month. You might think that's a little bit of an unusual thing to look at, but it's generally the case when people are very comfortable with their job prospects, particularly their income prospects, they're more willing to leave the current job for another one. So it tends to be a pretty good leading indicator of wage growth. Oops, excuse me. And we've actually seen that. The green line here shows total compensation growth, so it includes wages and benefits. And as the quits rate has come up over the last several years, so has compensation. So you would think this is also a leading indicator that's pointing towards some slack coming out, some wage growth, 
which should translate into pretty good real income growth for the consumer, given the declines in, in uh, energy prices that we've seen as well, and really be a, a, a force for good for them in 2016. So at this point, I'm hoping I'm about on time. OK. OK, so at, at this point, I'd like to sort of put monetary policy in context using that discussion. So the Fed actually has what's called a dual mandate. So Congress has basically given us two goals that we're supposed to meet, uh, price stability and full employment. Now, price stability means for us a 2% inflation target. So, and then that's measured by a particular measure of inflation, the Personal Consumption Expenditures Price Index. That's a uh, target as an average over a medium term. It's not a ceiling. It's sort of over a uh, medium horizon, say three to five years, we should be uh, hitting an average of 2%. A full employment is a little bit more difficult concept, but we can think of that in terms of this natural rate of unemployment. So currently, the, the Federal Open Market Committee, their own um, projections for longer run unemployment would suggest that this is something like a 4.8 to 5% unemployment rate. So let's look at where we are currently, sort of what the committee expects over the coming years. So currently, the unemployment rate is, is right at the top of that range. And the committee expects over the next several years that the unemployment rate will continue to come down a little bit below that natural rate. And as we go below that natural rate and start to remove this a little bit of excess slack that's still there in, in labor markets, we should start to see some upward pressure on prices. Labor markets get a little tighter, wages start to pick up, that generates some inflationary pressure. And the reason for that expectation to, to a large degree is that if you look at current inflation, it's well below 1%. So we're well off of target. So to get back up to that 2% target, uh, we would need the unemployment rate to go a little bit below 5% for an extended period to generate that inflationary pressure. And that's sort of what the committee's expectation is, slowly over this period getting back to that longer run target. Now the, the caveat with all of this is this is all predicated on what we do. And so the committee also gives an expectation of what they think the appropriate monetary policy is likely to be over the coming years. As everyone knows, we've started the process of policy normalization. We started to increase the federal funds rate in, in December. Now, this, this plot here, which is the infamous dot plot, each one of these dots represents an FOMC member's projection of what they think the appropriate level of the Fed funds rate should be at the end of, of each year. So you can see in 2015, just about everyone expected you know, that we, we should be starting that normalization process. The other thing to take from this, though, if you look at these dots and you kind of find the middle dot as you go through here, uh, the consensus of the committee is that the increases should be rather gradual, that economic conditions are generating some above trend growth. We are probably going to generate some upward pressure on inflation, but not all that much upward pressure on inflation, and we won't fall that far below the natural rate. And that's, therefore, the Fed funds rate can increase at a pretty gradual rate and maybe even end the period over the next three years, slightly below what we would think of as the normal or longer run equilibrium rate. Now, the thing to keep in mind, even though we've started the normalization process here, uh, is that financial conditions actually still remain rather accommodative. The funds rate is still well, well below its equilibrium rate. The balance sheet is still rather large. So one way to see that is actually to look at an index that we produce at the Chicago Fed. It's called our National Financial Conditions Index. It's very similar to the, the CFNAI that I showed you earlier, but just uses financial data. 
So it looks at 105 different uh, financial variables and tries to get a sense of where they are relative to a long-run average. So when a, most of these variables are below their long-run averages, that's when you'll see a negative index value. And generally, that aligns well with an indication of monetary policy being looser than average. And that's still what we currently see. Even though this has been coming up as, as policy has started to normalize, we're still running a loose policy, still trying to eliminate some of that slack in labor markets. Uh, so it's important to keep that in mind. It, it seems like uh, there's less of a need for the stimulus that we've, we've put into the system over the last several years, but there, it is still there. And it will still be necessary to sort of remove the, the little bit of slack that's still out there. But overall, with stimulus still in place, with the consumer situation being pretty good, pretty, uh, pretty bright prospects for the consumer, 2016 should end up looking at the end much like 2015 did, slightly above trend growth, continued improvement. At this point, I'll hand it off to, to Rick. It's a pleasure to be back here again today. And I think Scott gave you a probably more uh, optimistic outlook than I'm going to give you when I talk about Illinois and Chicago. Um, and so uh, in, in, in that spirit, I, I always try to tell a joke because I realize what I'm about to do is incredibly depressing. Um, the, uh, the, the problem is, is that I've talked to this group so many times, I've actually sort of run through all the good jokes, and I use good in a very qualitative sense. Um, they re refer to economists. I'm going to recycle one of my favorites, which is uh, you should always remember that a person basically decides to become an economist when they realize they don't have quite enough personality to be either an accountant or an actuary, okay? Um, so that gives you some sense as to what, uh, what you have to look forward to with my presentation. So um, as usual, what I'm trying to do is put a lot of what Scott was talking about, a lot of the themes that Scott developed, and put those in the context of what we're seeing for Illinois and Chicago specifically. And you know, if you've been at these before, you know, this is not going to be a whole lot different than probably what I discussed the last several years, because um, there's obviously one clear factor that's overlying the entire performance of Chicago and Illinois, and that's really the fiscal situation uh, facing both, uh, both parts of our, uh, of our government. Um, so the big picture for Illinois has been, again, this sort of continued pattern. Um, we went through a recovery where we basically underperformed kind of the U.S. average, um, both going into the re recession and then coming out of the recession. In the last year, we saw a significant improvement in Illinois' performance. This particularly showed up in the unemployment rate. Um, so Illinois actually, at one point, had the fastest decline in the unemployment rate of any state in the country. And you saw this sort of important sort of shift that was happening. And a lot of this was driven by dynamics in Chicago. So the other thing we saw flip last year was Chicago became the fast-growing part of the state's economy, particularly when it comes to employment. And the rest of the state started to underperform. And this fits perfectly what, with what Scott's remarks were, which is this is really a phenomenon of manufacturing sort of to going into this sort of slower cycle. You know, prior to this, it was the downstate parts with a more manufacturing and agriculture intensity that were doing better. Chicago was suffering because Chicago is a heavy finance business and professional services economy, and those were the parts of the economy that were the slowest to recover coming out of this recession. Um, however, you know, the big story is still really uh, fiscal conditions. Um, and it's interesting, even yesterday when General Electric announced that they're moving to Boston, um, the Tribune had a story that said that Chicago was actually one of the places they had talked about moving. Um, but they said there was simply too much uncertainty. Um, and that for that reason, they, didn't, they took Chicago off the list as a possible location for their headquarters, even though Chicago had all the other characteristics they found desirable about 
Boston, which was a highly educated workforce, great higher education institutions within the region, good market position, all the other stuff that essentially Boston has. Chicago probably has an even, an even greater concentration. But they said that there was just too much uncertainty when they looked at the financial and fiscal position of Illinois to make the pull the trigger on doing that. Um, the big issue for Illinois and Chicago is, is that we've essentially created a structure where we've had what some economists like to refer to as fiscal illusion, um, which is we've reported that we have balanced budgets. Um, but the reality is, is we've had a structural deficit for really both the city and the state's government really dating back to 2000. Um, so essentially, revenues haven't been covering expenditures for a long period of time. And this gap has been multiplying and obviously rolling over over time. You know, the most common way this has occurred is simply as we borrow from the future to pay for current services. Um, so it's easy, relatively speaking, to look at Illinois and say, we're not really a high-tax state when you look at our existing structure. But the reason why we're not a high-tax state is because we simply don't pay our bills, right? So it's easy to be not a high-tax state if you don't pay your bills. Um, and this, uh, you know, unfortunately has not gone unnoticed, OK? Um, so you know, every um, major um, agency that does any sort of credit rating has pretty much downgraded Illinois. Um, and it's had a contagion effect. So it's not just the state being downgraded and the city being downgraded. It's all the related governments. So if you look at right now, particularly like regional universities in, um, in Illinois now are rated basically almost a, just a tick above speculative. They're a tick above junk in terms of it because there's no expectation of knowing how much the state's actually going to provide and resources to these universities going forward. And so this is creating this sort of pressure that's really cascading throughout the economy. And so that's a, a real problem. Um, and you know, the problem, too, is, is that efforts to solve this have only been kind of piecemeal. Um, so while there have been some efforts to sort of close some of these gaps. Um, some of them have run into court challenges, and some of them haven't really been large enough in terms of magnitude to really get us to a point where we actually have solved these sort of problems going forward. But first, let's look at employment growth. So let's turn, turn to the happier story here. So as you can see, if you're looking right now, now this is something that the um, Institute for Government and Public Affairs at the University of Illinois puts together. And it's a forecast of job growth from September 2015 to September of 2016. And what you can see is if you look at the, the various parts of the state's economy, the good news in Chicago is, as you can see, we have a fairly robust employment growth rate, 1.5 to 1.62%, with the expectation that we could be adding up to 63,000 jobs in Chicago. And clearly what's driving this is professional and business services, a you know, robust expectation of almost 4% growth in one of the key sectors of Chicago's economy. What you can look at in the other parts of the, of the state is they either have anemic growth, like Bloomington normal Champaign-Urbana or Peoria, or they have absolute outright negative growth. So they're going to be shedding jobs in these other areas. And the key thing you can look at is most of these areas are shedding jobs. It's manufacturing that's driving that, um, or information sectors that are the part that are contracting the fastest that's making it difficult for these economies to sort of grow at the same pace as Chicago. So Chicago is the relative shining light going into 2016 relative to the rest of the state at this point. Now, if you look at by sectors, this is um, one of these overly complicated slides that economists love um, because there's way too much going on in here. Um, but so just trust me when I tell you what's going on in here. Um, so the, fir the first thing you should do here is, is you should look at the first column or the number of jobs lost in that particular sector during the last recession, all right? So for in construction, for example, you lost 64,000 jobs over the last recession. Since we've emerged from the recession, however, we've only regained about 7,200. 
100 of those jobs that were lost. So the recovery rate, which is the third column, is only about 11%, all right? So we've only recovered about 11% of the jobs we lost. And so what you can see here is, is the clear sense of that we've really only had growth in three sectors of the economy over this period of time. Um, healthcare never lost jobs, education and health. During the recession, it continued to expand and has continued to add jobs. But if you look at the other two, it's professional business services that has had a 169% recovery rate. So it's more than you know, almost doubled in terms of what it lost over the sector. And then leisure and hospitality that also has come back again at a very strong rate. So those are the sectors that have had fairly strong growth coming out of this. But as you can see, really across all the others, you're down significantly. I mean, you're really not getting the kind of recovery from what we saw during the recession. So there's still a lot of room to go. The last two columns are the forecasts really going through 2016. As you can see, some of these rates improved, but there's not like huge differences in terms of the distribution or the composition of where these things are. So that gives you a sense of sort of like where the job picture is and again, where, which industries are the ones that are kind of firing at this point. Um, so now let's turn to the, the really ugly part, okay, the Illinois fiscal climate. Um, so, you know, on paper, one of the things you have to realize is Illinois has not been a particularly high-tax state. Um, so one of the things that always sorts of, it, it doesn't amuse me, but when, you know, Iowa or Indiana will say, you know, come to our state because we have really low taxes, um, it really historically is not true, all right? And I'm going to show you taxes as a percentage of GDP in Illinois are actually quite favorable relative to those other states. Um, however, as I said, that's come at a cost because we simply, again, don't pay our bills, right? Um, so what we've done is you know, build up this accumulated debt, particularly in unfunded pensions, which have allowed us to sort of maintain this artificially low tax rate relative to what the obligations are of the state. The two really big issues that I think I highlight and how to think about this is one is, is it creates uncertainty, right? If you're a business or even just a person moving into Illinois right now and somebody came to you and said, well, what do you think about the future? Well, I can tell them from the government side is, I can't tell you what the tax rates are going to be in the future, but they're probably not what they are right now. And I can't tell you what services are going to be provided, but they probably aren't the same ones you're getting right now. So that uncertainty creates a sense in which how do you make your investment decision based on that kind of a environment. The other thing that's also particularly pernicious about building up a large sort of unfunded obligation in the state is it means that whatever tax increase we are going to pass or probably have to pass, um, it's going to go for services we've already consumed, all right? So these are paying for services we consumed 5, 10, 15 years ago. They're not paying for serv new services. They're not expansions of any operations. They're not positive in that way. Um, so that's a problem. And again, the issue for all municipalities really is one of contagion. You know, if you talk to almost Almost any of the credit agencies, their big concern is they don't know what the level of state support is going to be going forward for localities. And so they're saying you're going to have to hold much larger fund balances. You're going to have to protect yourself against the down, down, um, any sort of downside risk of realizing the state is probably not going to be as strong of a partner with you going forward as it was in the past. And there's also this concern that you're going to see significant shifting of costs from the state government to local governments. And so that's also going to have impact. So the fiscal health of localities is going to matter a lot in terms of how competitive they are coming out of this. So this is an exercise where it takes tax revenues over a fairly long period of time as a percentage of gross state product, all right? So it's taxes relative to the size of the 
economy. As you can see, really, over this entire period of time, Illinois actually was below the US average, okay, in terms of taxes levied as a share of gross product. And it's actually very competitive with almost all of our neighboring states. I mean, Wisconsin's significantly above that. So that's good news, right? So we're tax competitive when you come to that. The problem is, is again, we've been building up this liability over time. So you have to think about what would it take to actually solve that problem. So the first thing is you have to think about how big is the gap, all right? And when did the gap actually occur? So again, this is something the University of Illinois does. And what they've done is it's created a model where they're able to project the state's expenditures and revenues, assuming no changes in policy, but also importantly, it's total expenditures for the state. So it's not just the general fund, it's everything the state spends money on. And if you do that, what you see is you get this very ugly picture, which is beginning in 2000, the red line are revenues, all right? So beginning in 2000, revenues were not matching expenditures. Um, so we started running a structural deficit, and we've been running one for 15 years at this point. Um, the problem is, is when you do this over this long period of time, you build up this extended liability. And their estimate of the total liability that the state has at this point is $159 billion, is uh, what we're short, basically, um, in terms of, um, of where we need to sort of solve our problem. So then, so let's look at the impact, go back to that GDP figure, and look at the impact that if we tried to solve this gap by raising taxes. Well, the first thing, if we just solve the annual gap, okay, so the gap between revenues and what that year's expenditures were, it would take all of a sudden our gap, our tax revenues as a percentage of GDP, as you can see now, goes above the US average, right? And now we're in line more with Wisconsin, okay, in terms of where we are behaviorally. So all of a sudden, we don't look quite as good. Now, if you then try to layer on solving the pension problem on top of that, as you can imagine, it gets that much worse, all right? Um, and again, most of this red bar, these additional tax revenues, are, again, services we've already consumed. So you're not getting anything new for this when you're, when you're looking at this. So this is, you know, becomes the sense of, like, how it would potentially distort investment decisions in Illinois. So what's the implications for Illinois municipalities? Well, for Chicago, again, it's this notion that the state's going to be probably less of a partner, and that Chicago has significant fiscal problems of its own. Um, Chicago's pension funds are worse funded than actually the states are at this point. Um, and the property tax hike that went into effect on January 1st is not nearly enough to even solve the pension problem. Um, you know, even though it was you know, a, a significant $450 million increase, it's not enough to solve it. Um, the second problem is, is that you know, Chicago has a property tax classification system, which I'm sure you're all quite aware of, um, which is somewhat unusual. There are very few cities that actually do this. So it means any increase falls, in, you know, primarily on commercial and industrial property and less on residential property. And so if you look at Chicago's actual effective tax rates, the effective tax rate for residential property in Chicago is actually very, very competitive. It's actually lower than any community in the, in the seven-county region um, is the effective tax rate on residential property. However, the effective tax rate on commercial and industrial property is extremely high. It you know, ranks anywhere from second to third in the country in terms of its level relative to other major U.S. cities. So the problem is, is if you're looking for investment, you're actually taxing most heavily those things that are the investments that we probably need to help grow Chicago's economy. Um, so that's going to be 
be a difficult balancing act as we try to attract sort of economic development into the city. Um, the other things that obviously are going to occur are going to be higher, higher borrowing costs. Um, Chicago went to market this week, um, $500 million in GO bonds. Good news, the demand was more than double to buy these bonds um, than what they had expected. Um, bad news is we're paying 229 basis points above AAA for issuing these bonds. The yield's 4.8% on them. Um, it was supposed to go market at five, but there was such demand for them, it actually tricked it, ticked it down a bit. But you know, that's, those are real costs that the city's going to have. So we can still go to market, but we're going to market an extreme penalty relative to probably what we should be paying for issuing debt at this point. Um, again, less state support is certainly going to be part of the problem. Um, uncertainty is going to mean there's going to be a lot of pressure to carry much larger fund balances to show that you're able to exist, not just shocks from the external economy, from the US macro economy, but shocks from your own state government. Um, so you're going to have to be carrying larger fund balances. And economic development is really going to rest on this sort of knowing what your comparative advantages are and how these advantages can offset this fiscal <laughs> uncertainty. Um, so you're going to have to develop a story which is basically how do these other things that are pluses more than offset this fiscal uncertainty that's lying out there? Um, so that's really what sort of the future has to bear. Um, so can Illinois be fixed? Um, the issues are really um, five that I think are really out there. First is um, we're not going to solve it through demographics, okay? Illinois is not a fast growth state. In fact, we're net losing population at this point. Um, so the problem is, is for states like Florida, they can fix this problem simply because they add so much population and they grow their tax base. Um, second is the adjustment to this kind of a process. It took us 15 years to get into this problem. Um, it's going to take us a long time to get out of it. So what you need is a multi-staged approach to solving the problem. And the problem is, is that means it has to be binding. It has to be binding to future um, legislators and governors. So essentially what you're going to say is we're going to do a, a sort of a fiscal path for five or six years and everybody's got to agree we're going to stay on it um, and have the discipline to sort of stay on that line to make sure that we actually achieve those things. Um, again, revenues and expenditures are really going to change, um, but the context should be is, is how can we manage these things in the way that they're least economically disruptive? And so again, there's part of the argument can be how do we look at who pays taxes and what the effect is of who's paying taxes on, on the economy. Um, one way to do this is you can calculate something called a revenue hill. And what you can do for each community is actually look at sort of it's a laffer curve for, um, for each uh, community. And what it shows is where are you on the tax line, right? So how much of your tax base are you actually um, using up at this point? Do you have excess capacity? And can you use that excess capacity without distorting economic behavior? So you can figure out ways to do this in a more precise way than necessarily just broad-based increases across the board. And then how do we prevent this from happening in the future? Um, clearly, we have to have better fiscal rules in the state, um, more transparency in terms of both the accounting and the budgeting practices, um, better approach to doing forecasting, and probably a more rules-based um, system for how we do budgeting in the state. And if we can do some of those things, we can also make sure that when we get out of the problem, we don't it doesn't reoccur. Um, so with that happy note, um, I'm, I'm done. Um, and we're, we're happy to take any questions or I'll just run and grab a cab really quickly. So, uh, so Scott, you want to come back up here? So. Thank you, thank you. Yes, we are going to open it up.
four questions. I do have a couple on my on my phone here, but I will open it up to the audience and I oh, will bring the microphone to oh, you. Also, before questions, um, RJ yeah. actually had a good point. And it's one of the things that Scott does is um, our beige book stuff. And we're always looking for new contacts for our beige book. Um, so if any of you would like to be surveyed, um, this is an exciting opportunity for you. Um, give us your business cards and we can make sure that you receive a regular communication from Scott on, uh, and we'd love to have you participate in some of the survey work we do. So. Yeah, stole my thunder, yeah. yeah. So, so we started releasing a new survey yesterday, yeah. which connected with the beige book. So if you want to participate in that, it's a public thing now. You can actually see the output um, your input provides to us. Yeah. Questions from the audience? Uh, thanks, guys, for what you were speaking to about the financials of our great state and city. Uh, the statement was made about the tax base as far as residential yeah. is actually lower than the surrounding, I guess, call them suburbs or yes. other metropolitan areas. Have you ever done a comparison between the actual city services that Chicago provides versus, let's say, an Elmhurst, an Oak Park, one of those areas where I'm looking to buy a house possibly? Yeah, <laughs> that's, that's actually a really great point because you're right. I mean, it's that balance between those things. I mean, um, we haven't done anything like that, but you're right. That's part of the calculus. If you, you know, again, people, I mean, most of the economic literature will say people don't necessarily mind paying higher taxes if they believe the value of the services they receive are extremely strong. So this is always held up as the Minnesota example, right? Minnesota is a relatively high tax state, yet it attracts investment because most people feel the, you know, types of services that Minneapolis provides are well worth paying the taxes for. Um, so you're right, there's a balance by that. And I don't know the answer to your question, but it's a very good question. So. I live in Glen Ellen, so I think Elmhurst is a, a lovely town. So. <laughs> Thanks to you both again. Um, Scott, you said that it's going to be the same as in 2016 as it was in 2015. On balance, yeah. yeah okay. But all your charts were trending negative. Except, so. yeah, no, that's a good point. Okay. Except okay, so how are we, yeah. are we going to all of a sudden have a spike in the first quarter? Or what? Uh, the consumer. So the consumer is the one. It's not trending down. And in fact, if you look, the consumer has really been the driver of the last two years for that growth. The fact that we've been able to be slightly above trend is because the consumer spending has been quite good. That continues. And that actually. All those other things. That and are not trending. only continue, but pick up. It's, okay. it's much more likely to pick up. Okay, great. Okay, I have one on my, here we go. I have one off my phone. How is tax incentives being reformed? How are tax incentives being reformed? Well, that's an interesting question. I wouldn't say they are being reformed at this point. Um, you know, one of the things you've seen is, is with a lot of the headquarters, obviously, that have been moving into Chicago. Again, this is where you have this sort of different kind of economic development paradigm. I mean, every city, everybody who moves into Chicago says we're moving in because of a great labor force, because millennials want to live in cities, and because this is the dynamic you're seeing pretty well nationwide. Um, but at the same time, almost all of these um, headquarters are also requiring significant tax incentives. Um, to pull the trigger on making these deals. And in many cases, I think it's because they're saying, look, I want to be held harmless against whatever future tax increases are going to occur within Chicago. Um, so they're trying to balance out their risk. Um, so it's, you know, I haven't seen the ability really to withhold tax incentives at this point um, as an, you know, at, in a way to attract business. So I, th I think they're still being used fairly robustly. So. 
The global situation is definitely will be a, a drag on growth. Oh, sure. Um, so you asked how the global situation is likely to affect the U.S. economy in 2016. It's most likely going to be the case that the world growth situation will still be a drag on us as well. Um, what the size of that, it, it, there's a lot of uncertainty on that. I mean, obviously, right now, China is kind of front and center and disruptions in financial markets. Uh, if that were to spill over to our financial markets and financial conditions were to tighten a little bit more, you might expect it to be a little bit bigger drag on us than it was last year, for instance. But right now, I don't think you've seen a whole lot of evidence of that, and that's why most people expect 2016 will still see a drag, but it's, it's not going to be anything more than what we've seen already. If we're very fortuitous, you asked the question before mine. Um, I'm, I'm actually piggybacking on his. Um, with the uh, ascension of the uh, Chinese currency to be on a par as far as the banks are concerned with the U.S. currency um, as a national, uh, being able to trade in that, in that currency, um, I, I'm curious as to what effect, and, and with the China's tremendous investment in, uh, throughout the, in the United States, um, I'm curious as to what effect that might have on uh, the um, power of the uh, U.S. dollar to uh, main, maintain its uh, its value. The appreciation of the dollar. It seems like, I mean, yeah, that, there's, a, there's a lot of uncertainty, I think, in that situation right now. But the underlying trend throughout this period has been the dollar continues to appreciate because our economy does look much stronger than the rest of the world at, the, at this point in time. As long as that trend continues to hold, it's, it's very unlikely uh, that that appreciation will slow, stop. Uh, I think we enjoyed a long period where the dollar was kind of depreciation, uh, depreciating, and manufacturing benefited from that. Exports boomed. As manufacturing has pulled back, as the dollar has increased, you've seen that trend switch around. Uh, but yeah, it, that's going to be another drag. If you look at the world growth situation, it's slower world growth and a stronger dollar. That, that definitely doesn't add up to a very strong year for manufacturing. Well, specifically with regard to China going mm -hmm. south on their, uh, you know, on their economy, um, and with the far probability that they're going to want to be able to put more money, more money, more money into the United States, um, might would that is there possible that there be enough of that money coming in that it would start to fuel inflation and other other things for us? I wouldn't put a high probability on it, but it, you know, there, there's a possibility there. I think that that is one of the biggest uncertainties. When our president uh, gave a speech yesterday, Charles Evans, that was one of the things that was brought up to him, and he talked quite a bit about the uncertainty surrounding the Chinese economy at the moment. Um, that is really one of those downside risks to, to keep a close eye on. Um, it could go in a couple different directions, whether it spills over to our financial markets, whether it spills over to the trade situation, currency situation as well. Um, it's definitely sort of the elephant in the room here at the beginning of 2016. Uh, but I, I don't see, at this point, some major impacts from the, the Chinese situation. I think this will be our last one, just in terms of timing for everyone. Uh, thank you both. Uh, Rick, question for you uh, with the budget, budget stalemate in Springfield. Yes. Uh, what is your expectation in terms of what you were talking about in terms of the uh, pr predictions for this year? Um, are you, you have any expectation that's going to be resolved anytime soon? <laughs> <laughs> uh, great, great question. Um, 
I mean, at, at some point, I mean, uh, I mean, just from a mathematical point of view, the state would will run out of money sometime by the end of the three, third quarter in money that they can appropriate without a budget. Um, so they, they will actually hit a wall at some point um, where they actually will have to take some action. Um, the, you know, the problem right now is, is if you just sort of straight line extrapolate out what the state's spending path is right now, it's, it, it comes in about 20 to 25 percent um, below what actual revenues will be. Um, so, you know, you're, again, you're extending this sort of structural gap we have. Um, so the sooner you get to this, obviously, the easier it's going to be to sort of, you know, do that. I mean, the, the interesting thing is the governor's got to deliver the next budget in another month. And uh, given we don't have a current budget, that's going to be a neat trick to kind of come up with the next budget after that. So. All right. Thank you so much. If we can give a round of applause to our speakers. Please also don't forget to fill out the surveys that are on the table, and we'll see you back here on February 11th. Thank you, everyone. <laughs>